Thank you, mate. Stereotypes are a little dangerous in the world we live in now, aren't they? Impressions or stereotypes used to be things we would do all the time. They still happen a little bit, don't they? If you spend any time in the Sutherland Shire, you'll know that people still stereotype us burgers down here in Helensburg, don't they? They think of us in certain terms. It's not very fair. It's probably a little bit true, but it's not very fair. And uh, they still do it to us. There's some stereotypes that are okay you're allowed to have and some that you're not allowed to have. There, are, there is a stereotype out there about Christians, isn't there? A stereotype about Christians, particularly Christian preachers. It's all fire and brimstone and repentance. Yeah, it's amen. Yeah, very good. All right, fair enough. Uh, uh, maybe this has led to the rise across the world of the feel-good preacher because it's a stereotype that for a lot of Christians we're not necessarily comfortable with. Many of you are. Okay, good, that's fine. Uh, I might go a bit harder today. Uh, but uh, no, the, that's, that's how it works, isn't it? There's a stereotype about Christians uh, and especially about Christian preachers that we're all about this idea of repentance, sin, doing the wrong thing, needing to change, and so on. But it's not just Christian preachers that have said this over many years. Of course, John the Baptist was a keen one for this. Now, he was uh, a bit of a weird guy himself, wasn't he? He would have got a stereotype made about him back in the day, without doubt, uh, with his locusts and wild honey and weird clothes out in the desert and so on. But he said, repent and believe. But it wasn't just him, was it? Jesus came along and picked up the same themes as John the Baptist, saying the same things, repent and believe. This repentance part is a part that, if we're honest, no one enjoys. Christians don't enjoy it. Christians don't enjoy talking about it. And the non-Christian world hates the idea of it as well, as we've already talked about. Yet it is integral to what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to be a person of repentance Uh, you might remember i've mentioned before but as as martin luther 500 years ago nailed those 95 theses to the wittenberg door his number one thing that he said the first thesis was this look at it on your screen from martin luther he said when our lord and master jesus christ said repent he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance Last week, as we looked together at 2 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, we saw Paul finally, after six chapters, get to call on the Corinthian church to repent. And today, he encourages them to take up those words of repentance, saying that it's good for them to do so. In fact, they've done it before and they should do it again. And we will see as we go through that it's important for us to be people of repentance as well. This morning we're going to look at this passage under four headings. Soft hearts, hard words, true repentance, uh, real repentance and true obedience. I'm going to pray and then we're going to dive aboard. Don't forget, please, the questions that will happen a bit later on as well. So we'll take those up at slido.com. Let me pray. (coughs) Heavenly Father, we ask please that this morning you'd help us as we consider this tough topic of repentance and how we might respond to repentance. We do ask please... Uh, that you would help us uh, this day to understand your word, to make sense of it, to apply it, to put it into practice in our own lives. Uh, we ask, please, that you might help us to take what here, is, uh, what here are hard words uh, and to uh, have them met with soft hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, Paul has taken six chapters, as I've mentioned, uh, to get to this point. He has argued and pleaded with his listeners to encourage them at chapter 6, verse 14, to repent. Do you remember that passage from last week? Chapter 6, verse 14. This is his call of repentance. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And we saw that while this might have secondary application to, uh, to couples and dating and marriage and all of those things, its primary, primary application is about the church in Corinth. It was about how God's people had yoked themselves to these false teachers with a false message and a false way of delivering that message. And as a result, they were involved in false worship. However... Paul has already said, you Corinthians are not listening to me. You haven't opened your hearts to me and my message. Instead, you've opened your hearts to these false people, these false teachers. And you might remember just before the section on repentance in chapter 6, verse 14, Paul said this in chapter 6, verse 11. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as uh, to children, widen your hearts also. And then on the other, uh, on the other side of the rebuke in chapter seven, verse two, he takes up this same argument by saying this, we make room in your hearts for us. We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. This is our first point this morning. He calls on them to have soft hearts. Paul says, we've always spoken the truth to you, Corinthians, the truth of the gospel of Christ, the death and resurrection of Jesus. We've always spoken the truth. We've always spoken out of good motives to you. And now you Corinthians open your hearts to us. Well, we spoke about this a little bit last week, didn't we? As we considered chapter six, we said how people can have their hearts closed to the message of Christ. But they can also have their hearts closed to the messenger of Christ. And when your hearts are closed to the messenger of Christ, no matter who that is, you will be by definition closed to the message as well. And this was the problem with Paul and the Corinthians. Just this last week, I've been on a, on a camp for the week. Uh, and I've been speaking on that camp to a bunch of Year 12 students at school. And uh, it's, uh, it's, it was a great camp. We enjoyed our time together, except for the rain, but we enjoyed our time together. But one thing you notice in those camp situations is the people who are, uh, have their hearts open and the people who do not have their hearts open. And it's pretty clear, frankly, in that Year 12 cohort, especially in my first talk, it was easy to see who was listening, mainly because they had their eyes open. A whole bunch of them didn't bother to open their eyes. They just lay down on the grass and slept while I talked and then told me that they slept afterwards as if I didn't know. And in any case, they weren't open to the message. It was obvious. But that was a bit of a challenge for me then, see? I took it as a bit of a challenge to get those sleepers to listen by the third talk. Relationship building was my goal over the next little while because I didn't know most of the kids. And so uh, thankfully, by the third talk, I can't say they were interested in the message yet, But at least they were open in their hearts to listening to me. They didn't fall asleep. And hopefully the message was true and able to be heard by them in that context. You see, that's how it works. When we open our hearts to the messenger, we often open our hearts to the message as well. 
Now, sometimes I say things that often hit home, or not often, sometimes hit home, uh, and, uh, and help people. Apparently that happened last Sunday night as we asked, someone asked a question about this particular topic. Somebody said, how can we make sure that we keep our hearts open to those who might speak God's word to us? Uh, and the answer to the question was, uh, like most of the questions, sort of off the cuff and a little flippant, but it was uh, helpful, I think. I asked the congregation whether or not they've ever been annoyed by anyone at all. Now, I don't know, they, there was only about two or three hands at first, and then everybody's hand went up after that. Now, I don't know if I was to ask this congregation, have you ever been annoyed by someone, what you might say, but I get annoyed by people. No. Maybe I'm alone. Am I alone? Good, 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 good. We all get annoyed by people, don't we? They frustrate us and they annoy us. But here's what we can do in our own homes and our own households. We can go home to those households and make that annoyance into something bigger than it should be. That's just a personality clash. But when we're talking about people that are annoying or people that are irritating, uh, then we can find that we can build that up to such a degree that we end up not being able to listen to them. Uh, The reason I mentioned it in the Sunday night is because it's a classic for youth work. The youth get annoyed with the youth leaders that might speak the message of the gospel to them. They don't really click or connect with them personally. And then they go home and say, Mum, Dad, that person's annoying to me. And Mum and Dad might say, well, that's okay. That's okay. It's okay to be annoyed. But annoyance is like temptation, isn't it? Temptation by itself is not wrong. Jesus was tempted. Annoyance by itself is not wrong, but it's what we do with that that's a problem. And if we take that annoyance to the place of distraction, we'll find that we close our hearts to the messenger and the message as well. Every church has a a fridge in their kitchen that has at least one piece of Play-Doh in it. Isn't that true? Play-Doh is the key to running a creche program of any kind or sort. Uh, And you need to make sure that there's Play-Doh ready for the young kids to play with every single week. But it must be wrapped up before it goes in that fridge. It needs to be wrapped up because otherwise you need to go home again and make a whole new batch of Play-Doh. Why? Because it's hard. You can't mould it any longer. It's not soft. It's hard. And Paul is saying here in these verses, verses 2 to 4, that our hearts need to be soft, ready to hear from faithful words of God, to have our heart, heart shaped by God's word, especially in the face of a potential rebuke. See, Paul is here saying to the Corinthians and to us as well, make room in your hearts for us. Open your hearts, have a soft heart to God's word. Listen to what God is saying to you, especially when, They are hard words. That's our second point this morning, hard words. The rebuke that Paul brought in chapter 6, verse 14, wasn't the first rebuke he'd brought to this church. He'd had a rocky ride. As we mentioned a few months ago now in our series on 1 Corinthians, he spoke to a feral church who had lots of problems and needed lots of rebuking. But we find out in 2 Corinthians that there was another letter a letter written between 1 and 2 Corinthians, a letter we do not have. And in this letter, we find that there were very painful words from the Apostle Paul to the the church in Corinth. You see, you might remember from uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2 that Paul had planned to visit the Corinthians 
and come with a painful visit. But upon judgment, he thought it would be better not to visit, for then it would be really difficult, but instead to send a letter that would be painful to them. Delivered by Titus, we believe. And then the plan was for Paul to meet Titus somewhere later and rendezvous in Macedonia, which they did. But this painful letter contained hard words, hard words of rebuke that Paul did not enjoy to say. Look at verse 8 together with me. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. It's a strange sort of verse, isn't it? I don't regret it, but I do regret it. I'm not happy I made you grieve, but I am happy I made you grieve. What's he saying? Is it sort of like saying, oh, sorry, not sorry? What's he saying here? Well, he's saying here, I didn't enjoy bringing you the hard words of rebuke. I don't enjoy making these hard, offensive decisions and words, but it was for your good. See, let me ask you, is it right to upset someone or to offend someone or to hurt someone for their long-term benefit? This is a massive question, isn't it? It's actually an enormous question that our culture is currently asking. Is it possible to speak truth into our culture for the future benefit of a person when it causes immediate hurt and offence? Our culture is asking this question, thinking about this question, pondering this question, and at the moment appears to be siding on uh, the, uh, the, the side of immediate hurt and immediate offence is a problem. And yet... That's actually what we do all the time if we're a parent. You see, if you're doing a great job as a parent, then you'll be disciplining your children. You'll be disciplining your children in the moment, perhaps with bad outcomes, for the future benefit of your children. See, it's perfectly fine, isn't it, to have in your children right at this moment tears Sadness and tantrums if they turn out a better person in the end. We know this to be the case. This is good parenting. We don't avoid tears in the interim. We allow tears to happen for their training in the future. It's counterintuitive, isn't it? We don't enjoy the tears any more than anybody else does. But when the tears are there and the discipline and training comes, we know it's for a good outcome in the future. Immediate offence, immediate hurt, immediate upset for long-term benefit. The same is true of your doctor, isn't it? Again, if your doctor is doing a good job from time to time, you'll go into your doctor and you'll speak to them. And they'll say, there's something wrong with you. You need immediate, invasive, hard surgery to defeat the problem you have. You might not have that at the moment, but that might be your problem down the track. Now, you could imagine any doctor with any sort of bedside manner would not enjoy bringing that sort of news. Please go and have your body sliced up. Nobody enjoys that idea. And yet, if it is for long-term benefit, we will put ourselves under that immediate hurt or immediate uh, uh, discomfort in order that we might turn out better in the end. 
And biblically, a rebuke is like that surgery or like good parenting. It's the incision that we need in our lives in the short term in order that in the long term, good might result, that we might be more like Jesus. And as someone delivers a rebuke one to another, it's not an occasion of saying, I've got life all worked out, so I'm going to tell you what to do any more than a doctor has their health all worked out. But they are hard words that we hope are received with soft hearts. And Paul says to the Corinthians, I delivered these hard words to you. In one way, I did not enjoy it, but in another way, I did enjoy it because it turned out for good benefit in the future. And as brothers and sisters, we need to be ready to deliver hard words. That is not easy, is it? Particularly in our modern world, which says offence and upset and hurt are tantamount to hatred. The Christian must be ready to deliver hard words one to another. Yes, checking our motivation. Yes, checking that it really is for the good of the other and not point scoring for the self. Yes, checking our heart. Yes, making sure that what we are about to say aligns with God's word and is not simply our opinion, but nonetheless, a rebuke, a hard word is part of the Christian life. None of us enjoy this. Paul didn't enjoy it. We don't enjoy it when we deliver or receive a hard word. But when we find it difficult, we must remember this. The assumption in our community is that we're all good people that have just gone a little bit wrong. But the Christian's view on life is that we're sinful people who occasionally do some things right. It's a very different outlook on life. And so we need to be able to risk saying these hard words one to another for the good of the other so that they might turn out more like the Lord Jesus Christ, which is exactly what happened to the Corinthian church. Brings us to our third point this morning, real repentance. Real repentance. Look at verse 9. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. When Paul had sent his previous letter, the letter we don't have, that contained some heavy rebukes in it, it upset the Corinthian church. They were fired up. They were angry with Paul. How dare he say such a thing? But over time, it resulted in godly grief that turned into repentance and change, a turn back away from sin towards God. This was the desired outcome for the apostle. Yes, the feelings were hurt. Yes, there was offense. But the end result was repentance, a turning towards God, a turning away from sin. And this is the difference between worldly grief and Godly grief. Worldly grief leads to death, Paul says. Godly grief leads to salvation, repentance and life. And as we saw earlier, Martin Luther said, repentance is at the heart and at the start and ongoingly through our Christian life. It's the air we breathe. These 
calls to repent or to lead us to repentance, godly grief, and therefore salvation. But again, this is not easy, is it? I do not find this any easier than anybody else here in this room. When we're brought face to face with our own sin, how do we respond? Here are four ways commonly that people do respond. First of all, they, they might be described as doing penance. When they find themselves to be face to face with their own sin and needing to repent, they might say to themselves, well, I just need to do something more. I need to go to church more or I need to read the Bible more or I need to give more money to more things. And in order to do that, I can, I can erase the bad feelings I have and replace them with good feelings of doing other things. I do penance. Now, of course, going to church, reading your Bible, giving money, all that, they're not bad things. But if they're done in the place of repentance, it's an inappropriate response. Secondly, uh, we might do uh, what Adam and Eve did, play the blame game. Now, we need to know, you and I, myself included, that this blame game is right deep down in our DNA. It's right there in our humanity to play the blame game. So that when we come face to face with our sin and a brother or sister comes to us and says, brother, you need to repent, sister, you need to repent, we can say, well, that's not my fault. I I blame the circumstances I was in or I blame my background and my upbringing because it's influenced me to make bad decisions in the present or I blame the messenger for bringing me the message in the first place. We play the blame game. Or thirdly, uh, we might manipulate the situation. Uh, One uh, writer, Australian pastor Gary Miller, put it this way. We can so put on a performance of despair, crying, woe is me, as loudly as possible to elicit sympathy from those around us. Now, this is much easier to do in a world where we've got the ability to broadcast our feelings. We can try to polarise the issue, not taking on the sin and repentance we need to, but instead creating teams, a government and an opposition, the pros and the cons, the people that are on my side and the people that are against me. And in the end, we deflect from the real issue of sin and repentance. Or fourthly, we can go into self-pity, making it a, a situation of grief Rather than repentance, we feel bad about it and that puts us deep down into a hole and then we look out for the help from people around us, again, looking for sympathy rather than change. I can see these things, all four of them, in my own life. Can you see them in yours? But according to Paul, these are all worldly grief. Worldly grief leading to death, not change and repentance. What we need is a godly grief that comes face to face with our sin and recognises the need biblically to change and to turn from our sin and to walk away from it. It's like going to the markets, isn't it? Every Sunday there's a set of markets on somewhere. You can go there if you want to. What are you going to get at the markets? You're going to get cheap rip-off versions of stuff. There you go. That's why you should go, maybe. I don't know. Cheap rip-off versions of stuff. Paul is saying there's a cheap rip-off version of repentance. It's called worldly grief. Don't buy the fake repentance, go for the real stuff. The godly grief that leads to repentance, a changed life that has us following the Lord Jesus Christ. See, if you're anything like me, the natural response most of the time 
when somebody says something like this to us in, in, uh, in the face of sin and rebuke, initially we might feel hurt, upset and annoyed. And if you're anything like me, you might start to respond in a worldly way, in one of those four ways that I mentioned earlier. But the point, hopefully, of the person that has brought you the words that time is not to score points against you, but to help you follow the Lord Jesus more tightly. And so the response needs to be a godly grief leading to repentance. And so Paul says in this passage, Corinthians and us here in 2508 today, we need to have soft hearts in the face of hard words leading to true, uh, real repentance, which in the end, fourthly, is about true obedience. Thankfully, when Paul had sent that letter, that hard letter, that difficult letter, that letter that caused such offence, the Corinthians actually responded with real repentance. Look at verse 5. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. Now, the reason for that is Paul was waiting for Titus to arrive and he took a bit longer to arrive than he should have. What's happening with the Corinthians? We'd love to know. We want to know the message. What happened? We were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. And then come with me to the second half of verse 13. We're going to continue on. And besides our own comfort, we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit had been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you is true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. Paul says, as a minister of the gospel, I had joy because when I sent that harsh letter to you, you responded with repentance and obedience that I found out about through Titus. What a wonderful thing. And so now he says, you've repented once before. You've done this already. Now do it again with this rebuke that I've delivered to you in chapter 6, verse 14. You've done it before. Do it again. The Holy Spirit has been at work in your life, Corinthians, once before. Now do it again. It's very hard, isn't it, to continue doing jobs that we find difficult. We just want to put them off. We enjoy, maybe we do them a couple of times. We think, I'm happy to do it a couple of times. But we just keep doing them over and over and over again. They're hard jobs and perhaps laborious jobs. And we say, I'll put that off until later. Repentance can be like that. I've done it before, I've done it before, I've done it before, I've done it before. I've repented from those big things in my life, but repentance is a consistent, constant thing for us. And Paul says to the Corinthians, the Holy Spirit has worked in your life once before. Continue to repent. Continue to live in keeping with salvation. Such that he says in verse 16, I rejoice because I have complete or perfect confidence in in you. I'm confident, Corinthians, you can do it again. I know this is another hard letter in another rocky relationship for us, but I'm confident that you will repent again. 
And in this, Paul shows us what lasting joy looks like. Lasting joy doesn't come from an ease of life or pleasant experiences or peace in our life. But lasting joy comes as we see God's work. We'll find in our Bible studies in the next couple of weeks, as we look at the letters of John, that we'll find John saying, I have no greater joy than to see that my children, that is uh, those he ministers to, walking in the truth. This repentance and turning towards Christ and away from sin is a source of joy for the Apostle Paul. And when we take the risk to share with our brother or our sister a need for them to repent, the joy is not in asking for repentance, but seeing that repentance put into action. The joy is in the path of return for that person. The joy is not in the hard words, but the right response. The joy is not in the hard words, but the soft hearts, the real repentance and the true obedience. And Paul says to the Corinthians, I rejoice because I have great confidence that you'll do it again. Well, what about you, brothers and sisters? Some of you have been Christians for a long time, others for a shorter time. Have you become tired of the act of repentance? Just that we put it off? That we don't make it as important as it once was? That we don't open ourselves up to being called out on these things as well? It's easy to do. And yet, as we've done it once before, so we take the words of Paul on our lips, we rejoice because we have perfect confidence in in one another. Because God is at work in our lives. He has been in the past. He will be in the future. Open your hearts to him and his word that we might repent. Well, as I mentioned, this is not an easy word because none of us enjoy repenting. None of us enjoy that. We want the uplifting message. We don't want this sort of message. And so how do we finish such a message today? Well, let me encourage you with five quick encouragements at the end of this section. First of all, give yourself over to being open and vulnerable in life and especially in your Christian life. One thing we can do as followers of the Lord Jesus is be a little superficial. When we live a superficial life with one another, it's very easy to never have to repent because nobody knows our life well enough. But if repentance is for our good, then it stands to reason that we must be open and vulnerable, maybe not with everybody, but at least with a number who can speak into our lives and tell us what needs to be changed. Secondly, we need a zeal to please God if we are going to do this properly. See, the reason that anybody might desire to speak these hard words is because they want the good for the glory of God through the good of that person. And so this is our number one priority. It was for Paul, it ought to be for us, that we have a zeal to please God. That results in, thirdly, a love for other people. As I mentioned, the, <clears throat> the act of uh, rebuking somebody is not an act of point scoring, but an act of love. This must be at the core of our heart, a zeal for God that shows itself in love for others. And fourthly, therefore, we need to have courage. We need to have courage, especially in the world in which we live, to speak the truth in love to others for their benefit. And then fifthly, 
We need to put ourselves in the shoes of those who would be rebuked and have open hearts ourselves. So I'm going to pray uh, right now and then we're going to go to question time and ask once again that God might give us soft and open hearts even as these words go around in our mind and our hearts right now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please open our hearts to what you're saying to us in each part of your word. We ask please that when those hard words come about, uh, when they are the, the wounds of a friend, uh, we do pray please uh, that you might help us to be open to them that you might uh, bring about in us a godly grief leading to repentance, leading to salvation. We pray that this might be uh, what our life looks like as a Christian all the way through our life. And we do ask, Heavenly Father, that you might uh, help us in this because it's such a difficult area both to, uh, uh, to deliver the hard words and also to have the soft heart. And so we ask, please, that you might uh, help us each step of the way in this. Uh, in order that each other in this room and in other believers that we know uh, might be more like the Lord Jesus Christ who we desire to be. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, uh, this hard word to us in 2 Corinthians 7. Uh, please help us now as we think about some questions together as well in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to pause, uh, have a think about some questions. Slido.com, hashtag HBSP, and I'll come back and answer a couple in about two minutes' time. All right, thank you for your questions. Uh, there's some crackers there. That's great. Thanks for asking. The Mike has said, yeah. Mike has said, I tend to avoid people who annoy me. Is this the right approach? Um, uh, yes and no. Yes and no. Um, so I think, I think uh, uh, well, there's two different things here. I think um, avoiding anyone... Um, doesn't allow you the opportunity to love them. So that's part of the problem. We've got to be called on to love everyone, including our enemies. So if we avoid anyone in that way, we're not able to love them. Um, but only God loves everyone perfectly every single day. I mean, we can't love everyone every single day. So there's got to be some people you don't spend time with because you can't love every single person every single day. So that's, that's possible as well. Um, but I would say, ultimately, no. Ultimately, if we're talking about the church family or something like that, I think avoiding people like that uh, would be a bad idea. 
because you, you want to be brought into, into, uh, co in, into community with them and the annoyance problem generally is on our own side rather than on the other side, I think. At least it is for me. Um, I think the, the, the context of this passage is um, we can often talk about uh, people that annoy us and then when they bring us God's word, so they might be in our Bible study maybe, and when we, we're talking together and they go, well, that person really is annoying. And then when they've got something to say in our Bible study group, we say, I'm not listening to them, they're an idiot, right? Because you've, you've gone over it so, much, so many times in your head how annoying they are and, and then you pull them down to the level of, well, you're a goose, I'm not listening to you. Now, again, maybe that's just me. Um, uh, uh, yeah, there's lots of people in my Bible study. That's fine, that's fine, it's fine. No, but I think, I, I think that's, that's the challenge for me is um, the annoyance is not their problem, that's my problem to deal with. It's a different thing if they sin against me. That's, that's more than annoying, that's sin against me, that's different. But if they're just annoying because of something, that they grind their teeth all the time, so I don't know, then you sit around the dinner table at home and you say, oh, that person's so annoying. Then you're just fulfilling that you know, prophecy in your own head about how annoying that. You need to be able to say, yeah, okay, they're annoying, fine, whatever. I mean, I'm annoying, you're annoying, we're all annoying, everyone's annoying. Uh, but it's when you take that and you use that negatively to then express uh, not listening to God's word out of their mouth, that's a problem. Um, that's a big problem. And so I think... Uh, uh, that's how I would sort of vouch that question. Thanks, Mike. Ella said, sometimes we continue, as we continue to repent, we can be discouraged, i.e. we keep doing the same wrong things. How do we persevere and maintain our hope in this? Great, great question. Uh, the answer is to remember that you probably will do the same things over and over again. Um, one thing that's, that came out of uh, uh, the, um, uh, the Alcoholics Anonymous movement is they recognised um, that once you're an alcoholic, you're always an alcoholic. That's the idea behind the, the movement, right? And that, that the relapse process is going to happen over and over again. I think sin, and therefore repentance connected to sin, sin and addiction go together. They're, they're connected. And in a sense, whatever we're, whatever we, uh, whichever sin we find most uh, appealing to us are going to be the things that we find most addictive to us. So we often think about addictions in terms of, you know, all of those different substances and all the rest of it, and of course they are addictions too. But we often don't think about, you know, lying as an addiction or whatever else it might be that's the sin that we have. That's an... So I think one of the important things for us to remember is, um, just like the Alcoholics Anonymous, the relapse into that particular sin is probably likely. Um, and it's, it's less likely that we'll suddenly relapse into some... We'll go into some sin that we've never done before. That's unlikely. Um, but we tend to have our own little addiction patterns and sin patterns in this box. And so when we realise that we're going to go through the same thing over and over again, that can help us because we recognise that's what we're doing. Uh, it's not a good thing, but we recognise that's part of, of, of who, we, who we are and we need to repent of the same thing over and over again. So it's not as if we're going to somehow master that particular sin that we have a problem with uh, all of a sudden and move on. God might do that. God might wonderfully heal us of that thing. But more than, more than anything, we'll probably have to keep repenting, keep trusting God for uh, that particular problem that we've got. I hope that's clear. That didn't seem to come out very clear, but anyway, I hope it's clear. Next one. Rebuking others is a very hard thing, correct, as we often anticipate that's a negative response. That's true too. Any ways, any tips for ways to approach it? Uh, gently, kindly, um, 
but directly. That'd be my tips. Um, yes, most of the time when I deliver some sort of rebuke, it doesn't go down very well. That's true. That's, it doesn't most of the time, and especially immediately. Uh, it doesn't go down very well at all. Um, and sometimes I don't do it well. Uh, I remember a particular occasion uh, way, 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 way back, there was a, a guy in my youth group uh, who would always pick on the kid that had cerebral palsy in the group. He would just whack um, uh, ping-pong balls at him all the time, whatever. And the kid was all right with it in a way, like he kind of played up to it for the group. But nonetheless, it wasn't right. So I remember... I remember raising my voice and yelling and screaming at him this particular day. And then he said, can I go to the toilet, please? And I said, yeah, sure, you can go to the toilet. never came back. Anyway, I knew where he lived, so I went over to his house and I said, look, I didn't deal with that particularly well, uh, but I stand by completely what I said. Uh, You shouldn't be doing that thing to that boy, um, but... um, I said it the wrong way, so I apologise for that. So sometimes there's a a place for some of that. Thankfully, uh, that fella is... uh, uh, a keen follower of the Lord Jesus. Now, that particular moment really turned him around, uh, so he would say, uh, and, and that's a really lovely thing. So recognising um, the, the plank in your own eye in that regard and being as gentle and kind as he can is usually helpful. And if you don't do that, like I didn't, um, then recognising that you didn't and saying sorry for that part of your um, delivery, I guess, as well. Um, but it shouldn't stop us from saying those things. Last one. In keeping with the surgery analogy... With any surgery, there is a time of healing. Uh, If the hard word doesn't produce change or growth, what else should we do? Uh, Well, I think biblically what you're talking about here is is someone who's been shown their sin and not repenting of it. Uh, And I guess over time that uh, biblically that sort of escalates things along a bit and you say, well, one, you take one person along and take a couple of people along and, and, and that sort of escalates in the Matthew 18, I think it is, uh, scenario. Um, and, uh, and that's what you do. But in some ways, um, the, the non-change or growth might be a sign that, that the Spirit's not at work in their life. They're actually not followers of the Lord Jesus. That might be a problem. Uh, or else um, uh, that, uh, that change is a long way down the track. Um, and so I'd, I'd encourage you to pray for that person and to uh, not uh, resile from the words that you've said, if they're true and biblical, uh, because the change should come about if the soft heart is there, but pray for the soft heart as well. We're going to sing together. I hope all that's helpful. We're going to sing together the song.